Welcome to Decades From Home, a podcast about the weird and wonderful side of living in Germany. And all without saying, you know what? Sandals are actually the best way forward. I'm Nick Houghton of 40percentgerman.com and I'm joined by my co-host Simon Maddox, who has been embracing cyber travel this week. So Simon, where's your holiday been to? Uh, yeah, so this is how I've sort of embraced the abilities of, uh, of tech. I, I did a little mm-hmm. trip to the Oregon coast. Uh, and for Ooh, regular nice. listeners, you'll know that's, that's where I used to live in the US, uh, two hours from Portland, place like Cannon Beach. And yeah, I found a place that allowed me to do a little cyber tour on my phone. I don't have an Oculus Rift or any VR equipment, so I wasn't able to really immerse myself in that. But I'm worried I would just like run into the sea and just fall out my window here into the street. Uh, and the other one I did, which made me feel quite geeky because I'm not as historically inclined as Nick maybe, but I did a tour of the tomb of Ramesses the sixth. Nice. Which was it was really good. So yeah, I can certainly recommend anyone that's got a smartphone with a decent screen on it. That's all you need. Uh, you don't need to have a, a fancy PC setup or VR equipment. You can still enjoy these cyber trips. And I think I kind of got this inspiration from you, Nick, because I know that you're also one of your weird YouTube lanes is is like walking tours of cities, is it not? Yeah, yeah. I started that really early in the lockdown. Like once I realized like where we were going, which is nowhere. Mm-hmm. Um, I, 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 I'm sure like everybody else, like anxiety kicks in boredom kicks in all of these things so i just started watching uh walking like um first person walking tours of i think it was mostly japan um anywhere that had lots of people and lots of stuff happening that you could look at and and i found that was a quite a a a, a sort of nice way to, to spend the time i'd maybe have it on the screen while i'm working and you can look up and like sort of stare at stuff and it just feel it does, obviously it's not the same as traveling but I think we're all just trying to find coping mechanisms, right? I'm not. I'm not going to lie. When you you took control of my YouTube and like, I was going to show you something, you pulled up a video of someone like walking through downtown Tokyo. My first reaction was like, "Huh? Why is he watching people walk through a city?" But then I found myself watching one, and it's like it's really it's relaxing, even though yeah, Tokyo may not be the most relaxing place mm-hmm. to be. But for me, it's always been like one of my fantasy cities to live in, mm-hmm. and the idea that you can like in 4k resolution mm-hmm. just kind of experience a, a small flavor of what it looks like mm-hmm. uh, is is yeah really really thrilling but you know you, you know there's that difference between seeing a picture of a place and then walking through that place and mm. it, it doesn't quite capture the same experience but there's a good one of new york new york's a good example of why it's good because it's such an iconic city but you only really see little snapshots of it but what you see in Mm. the video is just walking through the streets and that was my favorite part of going to new york wasn't the tourist spots it was just walking around and seeing it and seeing things happening and turning a corner and finding something weird or interesting and or a shop that you didn't know uh, ever existed or or all of that stuff was really good so yeah that's what i was sort of getting out of it i I love the just the sensory experience Mm -hmm. like the the rain in tokyo i think Mm -hmm. obviously when you see pictures of Tokyo in the rain it's it's stunning uh, and sort of that almost blade runner type like neon all that just really cool imagery that like really speaks to the computer game in me to have that additional sensory of like droplets of rain it reminded me of like playing Watch Dogs uh, on on Xbox 360 just having a wonderful time uh, cyber travel 
uh, I think we we both can recommend it right now. But it's the same thing for like video games. Like I found myself playing a lot more of the sandbox, expansive adventure mm-hmm. games where you're, you're sort of wandering around a landscape and you can do what you want. Whether that's something like Red Dead Redemption Two, or I've been playing Cyberpunk 2077. Regardless of glitches and issues that have come out with that game, it's just <laughs> lovely to play and watch and walk around this like vibrant environment. And you because you forget it's been it's been almost a year since I was in a crowd of people. And I think I don't. Mm. What I'm actually concerned about is what happens when I have to go back into a crowd, like the anxiety and all of these things. And so yeah. I kind of want to feel like um, it's not such a surprise to be in a group of people. I want to go to gigs and not feel like a little bit freaked out that I'm standing really close to people and things like that. You mentioned about being in a crowd for the first time, things like that. That is a genuine fear, uh, absolutely. Like going shopping is something that I do have tension connected to now. It's something I did all the time before my wife and i we got offered the opportunity to apply for tickets for the euros uh, the football tournament that's being rescheduled we didn't get them last time and she asked me do you want to try and get some and i just imagined for a moment going from now like wearing ffp2 masks everywhere to being in a stadium with 10,000 15 20 i don't know how many thousand people they'll have at that point and i just imagined the biggest panic attack ever <laughs> just not being able to handle that many people it's it's going yeah it's something that we all are going to have to adjust to and i don't imagine it's going to be as easy as everyone might think it's not all been it's not all been a horror story you know i think for and and i can say that from a immense pl- place of privilege for me it's not been a horror story i mean 2020 is the year that my daughter was born so it's going to be it's going to be mixed mixed i don't want to try like for her sake at least i don't want to remember 2020 as a wholly like horrendous event uh, even though horrendous events occurred um i think personally I'd, i i want to keep it as like the year that my daughter was born and, and but she's going to carry that around right anytime she says she was born in 2020 people will go oh 2020 right yeah the year that things changed corona baby or yeah there's um... yeah yeah corona baby and even i say that you know and i feel like that's labeling it a bit you know i don't really i should really stop doing it but yeah i think i think for for different people are gonna have different experiences i know from a lot of friends who follow uh football are like desperate to get back into a stadium which is just one side of it for me i'm more maybe want to dip my toe in a little bit and, and perhaps you're just at the other end of the scale it's like i think everyone just needs to take their time and not I, I am looking forward to being in some kind of street festival where I'm drinking a pint in a, a crowd of people. I am quite enjoying that idea. That's a long way off yet. It I does think. seem that way. I mean, the, the UK government at time of recording has just basically started saying summer holidays probably aren't going to happen in a way that everyone hoped they might. Um, mm-hmm. And I think it's really good they've come out and said, like, I think Gove and Johnson have both said that. And obviously they're both lying shitbags. But at least I think it gives people the opportunity to get ready. My wife and I have been pinning our hopes on being able to go to Wales this August to meet up with my mum and my brother and his, his family. I've not been totally optimistic about it happening, but now I'm I'm pretty pessimistic about the chance of that working as late as August. And yeah, that will be... Yeah, I haven't been home for... It's coming up to two years. Much longer than me, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's really been a long time. And yeah, naturally there's regret attached to that, that uh, the opportunities that we missed before the lockdown to go home, it, yeah, it would have been good. You can't, can't do that to yourself though, dude. You, can, you can't do that. Like, it's, you're not going to predict the future. You didn't know there was a pandemic going to happen. Like, I mean, we, we took our opportunity in October when there was like a small window of opportunity 
and my mother and my brother came over and I'm glad they did it then but they're the only members of my British family that have met my daughter you know and, and that's yeah it's, it's that's upsetting you know you she's missing out and they're missing out and I'm determined to be optimistic about it but I think at the same time it's sensible for governments to not dangle hope in front of people and then pull it away which mm. I think is what what the German government has been doing and the British government has been doing they should have they should have been more clear about the reality of it like we I think I knew most people probably knew at Christmas we're not that summer's the most likely point mm. I think anyone who thinks that that things are going to be anyway back to normal at Easter is kind of kidding themselves really and I think it's it's got to we got to wait till the weather improves cause I think the weather will improve and make it a lot easier because people can go outside a bit more but also as we saw last year infections dropped when the weather um, got warmer and that was something they'd already said could happen you, I don't know I, I, I can't I can't give people advice I, I can only talk for, for myself you know but I'm just trying to keep keep optimistic trying to find things to keep myself going and if that's watching YouTube walking videos <laughs> or if that's playing video games then that's that's the way forward it's better that <laughs> than the other alternatives I think Okay, Nick. So, if you do get the opportunity to do a walking tour in the in the nearish future, uh, what footwear are you going to go for? Good question. I've been I've been thinking a lot <laughs> about footwear because I've, I've taken the opportunity to get shoes while I'm not actually using them, so I don't wear them out instantly. So I'm sort of racking up some <laughs> proper decent footwear. What I notice a lot of people, I spent an incredibly large amount of time walking around shops looking at people's shoes. What you see a lot in Germany is a lot of like hiking shoes. That's mm-hmm. not really my style but guess some comfortable hiking shoes would make sense nothing with steel toe caps is this our proximity to the alps could be. is this like the edelweiss like I, i'm always ready to climb a mountain i'm bavarian or i'm franconian I'm, I'm ready for this do you reckon this is the case in in places like i don't know leipzig i don't know i mean you know the clearest indicator of a middle-class german is jack wolfskin right it's like, oh, Jack Wolfskin, you mm-hmm. probably work in an office, I think. Uh, so Jack Wolfskin <laughs> is usually the, the brand. It's it's like uh, North Face or any of the other brands. I haven't seen it in Britain, but I know it exists. It's, it's, yeah, it exists. So Jack yeah. Wolfskin's your like sort of indicator of someone's commitment to outside activities because it's quite expensive. And you do see a lot of Jack Wolfskin. It's, it's sort of, yeah, it's competitively priced, I'd say. I mean, I... I would say it's not really like North Face because North Face pushes itself as like rock climbing and climbing K2 and Everest and all that stuff. But it's also been embraced on sort of the hip hop and like skates. Like it's a brand that a lot of people think is really cool. Whereas yeah, Jack mm. Wolfskin, obviously the name is isn't cool. It's a little bit corny. Jack Wolfskin just sounds mm. a bit like on the nose, and their logo is like paw prints, and that might be cute. Maybe you really like dogs. But you're absolutely right. Like, if you're on public transport, the guy wearing the Jack Wolf skin probably like has a, has a desk. <laughs> yeah, I think you see a lot more yeah. people out on a Saturday and Sunday, and they're going just for a walk in the park, and they'll they'll have their uh, walking shoes on. I don't know how comfortable they are, really. I mean, once you're wearing a good pair of shoes, I'm not sure if the comfort factor's there. I find trainers like way more comfortable usually, if I'm just wandering around. Yeah, I mean, I'm I've got a trainer fetish now. So yeah, that's definitely a problem. Um, but I do have a pair of walking boots that I wear quite regularly. So how was about a pair of Birkenstocks, Nick? Uh, so you're becoming very German, but are you Birkenstock German yet? I'm a Birkenstock German. Uh, my wife's got Birkenstocks. I think all her family have Birkenstocks. Yeah, of course they do. <laughs> Birkenstocks for me was always the, the the label that was the squarest, most boring default shoes. You haven't got like. Like cool shoes, you just got the default. This brings us to an article. Uh, headline is Comfy Happy Feet 
Birkenstocks continue to run and run. Uh, and this Ba-boom. is an article. <laughs> this is an article uh, brought to you by the good people of theguardian.com. This focuses on Birkenstocks, a company founded in 1774, uh, and they are the subject of a possible 4 billion euro takeover. Uh, so, Nick, are you impressed by this valuation? 4 billion for Birkenstocks? Did you have any idea that this market was that huge? I mean, shoes, fashion, yeah, I get it. But I understand there's a lot of money in it. I was more surprised that it's been going since 1774. <laughs> it's really a long time. Like I mean, Birkenstocks in Germany are sort of like you see so many people wearing variants on Birkenstocks, whether it's house shoes or whether it's shoes for going out. A lot of people have them, especially in the summer, Birkenstock sandals. And they're very noticeable for their style as well. Is very once you've seen a one pair, you've sort of you can you, you can deduce a Birkenstock from a distance I think I just took no notice mm. of the company I hadn't taken any interest until I moved to Germany and then it became like a, a concern that I had to, or something that I had to know about you know and okay. I still don't really know a vast amount but I'm guessing I'm guessing that they're a very popular brand well obviously they're a popular brand ladies footwear women's footwear in general is, is a very it's a huge industry but we've seen a massive change in what people want to wear the situation we're going through with corona has had a dramatic effect so stilettos as, a, as an example fell 21 percent some of the biggest shoe makers the fashion shoe makers that's their one of their core sectors is stiletto and high heels whereas we've seen these yeah birkenstocks i guess clogs is one term i've used slipper house shoe is another one that's used there slippers went up 242 percent uh, last year in sales <laughs> that's not a surprise no. i thought i thought clogs were wooden i think anything that's clog shaped but they're made of a different material is still referred to as a clog i'm learning so much obviously listener you know from how this is going so far we're not experts <laughs> in women's shoe work. we're what, trying our what? best <laughs> do you think the audience knows that we have have no experience of, of uh, shoe shapes and how do, how do you think they'd work that out our audience is made up of sherlock holmes's i'm just delighted i said stiletto the right way. I, but i mean th- that information that tracks right you've got to be some kind of masochist if you're buying stilettos and you don't need to don't need to wear them because they're like torture devices whenever you see them and i mean you're the perfect example for for the 242 percent uptick in slipper purchases i mean you're you're mr slippers now right i i am i've i've actively uh, like tried to recommend them to other people <laughs> you're out trying to sell them have you got I them on got now them on right now i want to see them I, 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 I don't believe you until I, oh, look at those Oh, listener, if you could see the beauty of these tanned slippers, they are... They, they do look like you could climb Everest in them and be very I'm, comfortable. I'm ready for base but... camp, at the very least. Uh, <laughs> and that's probably my level. <laughs> I'll, I'll make the tea at base camp. And uh, I did the expedition to Everest. That's that's just, that's, that's perfect. <laughs> I like that. It's like, I'm going to Everest. I'm going to be the tea guy at base camp. I'd take that job. Yeah. That's a job I would take. It's, it Definitely. sounds far more Definitely. sensible than some of these other really brazenly brave or also poorly informed people that do try this and maybe it's only now that i'm looking at the birkenstock website there's something i'd noticed almost as soon as i arrived in germany was the men's style was generally the same whether you were in britain or in germany but uh, women's fashion was was slightly different and you'd see a lot of women walking around with like flat soled Mm. shoes and that sounds like a weird thing to say but when you if you went to newcastle you'd get what i mean because there's a lot of a lot of lot of the women will wear quite quite extreme footwear uh, to go out, but even day to day, the you see a lot of focus on having 
like the f- most fashionable shoes. The the trend that I saw almost, like I said, almost instantly as soon as I was here was that there was more women wearing just ordinary kickabout shoes than I'd ever experienced before. And like I said, it might just be from Newcastle to Germany, but I always found that interesting. L- looking at the looking at the site, I can see a lot of them were wearing Birkenstocks actually. Just looking at the shoe, I'm like, oh, they were I mean, they have two of the most iconic ones. The ones that we would all recognise almost immediately as Birkenstocks are the mm-hmm. the Boston Clog, which is the closed toe one, which I always, mm-hmm. whenever I see them, I just think of my mum because well, I grew up here in the 80s and Birkenstocks were like the popular mum shoe to have. And so all the video footage of my first four years my mum was almost always wearing these white Birkenstock clogs. And I think she has a pair now. I think she bought another pair. But it's just, <laughs> it makes me think of my mum. And, and so when my wife oh. came to, she kept mentioning about wanting to buy some and I was always a bit reticent. I don't really want her mm-hmm. to wear these. I, I, because they make me think of my mum. <laughs> it's, it's, not, it's not a shoe that I look at and be like, oh yeah, yeah that's really cool. Uh, or whereas, yeah, we've got lots of really nice- <laughs> Like mum fashion. Exactly. <laughs> I love my yeah, mum, yeah. but she's not a fashion icon for me uh, in any way, shape, or form. <laughs> but it's but it's like that thing. It's like the trend for mm. high waisted jeans. Like we were brought up, we were brought up on a strict diet of those are mom jeans, like American M O M mom jeans, and that's the only people who wore them. And the first time I saw someone wearing them, I was like, "Hey, that's a they're brave that they're going out in those." And then I saw more people wearing them, and I was like, "Oh." I'm behind, right? Okay, I better do some research. But yeah, I understand that. I understand that. I mean, our, our generation was damaged by Britney Spears and Christina Aguilera wearing like hip jeans, basically. And I, that mm-hmm. was how jeans were sold to our generation. And yeah, I'm, I'm still not a huge fan of the, the high-waisted. But I also don't want to see like the lowest jean possible. I do like a, a boyfriend cut. But then we—that cool. was our generation, right? Was wearing mm. your jeans around around like the, the the bottom of your ass, basically. Like I used to wear jeans that were just totally low waisted, and I think that's that again. It's it it's the real realization of generational fashion change, and I'm very behind. So it's just a matter of like accept it and move on, I guess. Yeah, I mean we're both far closer to forty than we are to Shut thirty up. now. So we just need to, <laughs> we need to just accept this. <laughs> It's, it's a harsh thing. I, yeah, my wife pointed out to me the other day, and I, it did make me quite sad for a few minutes, but it's, it's where we are. We need to just embrace it, and yeah, you're an actual dad. <laughs> Don't remind so me. Fine. I get it. I get it. I, I, what I'm really, really conscious of when we talk about fashion, especially fashion of, for younger people, which makes me sound as dad as I can, possibly can, you know? What I'm really conscious of, I, I never want to be one of those people who's like, oh, young people today. I really, that's one of the things I hate the most is every generation constantly has to look at the next generation and go, oh, you're doing it wrong. Mm. Dude, why don't you do it the way I did it? And it's just like, shut up. That's how time works. I think it's one of those questions that comes up in the article is this Birkenstocks became popular in the UK after Kate Moss wore a pair. And then there's like uh, a couple of other people, um, other uh, examples like Mark Jacobs used it in um, in a photo shoot. And you've got people mm. in the sort of 20, 2010s having them in, in photo shoots too. And so there's like the fashion icon element has an impact. And I guess the question is like who are our fashion icons do we do you have a fashion icon <sighs> not really no I, I, I when I think of our friendship group I can't think of anyone that does either I don't think I don't think we're badly dressed as a group <laughs> but uh, generally speaking I think we're all kind of pretty standard men like I have 
probably 15 pairs of the same jean uh, from Levi's, the 511 in a 34-34. And I've got it in just multiple different colours and fabrics that I picked up cheap living in America. And then my wife works for a major sports brand. So I'm just, I'm just <laughs> dripping <laughs> in their logo. I can see it in your background and on your shirt. I am, I'm <laughs> literally surrounded by it now. And the other thing I wear is baseball caps. And I have loads from a company called Brixton in California. Uh, I got a lot of Brixton stuff. So I just kind of wear these brands that I feel comfortable with and that, that they speak to me, uh, for lack of a better word, but no celebrity uh, or fashion. No one wore them and made me think, ooh, that's why. The only thing that I, I always think about is Casino Royale, uh, the film with Daniel Craig. And, and for me, that was the model for how I wanted to dress. So... And every scene that he's in, I have watched that film so many times because it's one of my, it's my favorite James Bond film. But also, his fashion choices really subtle, really simple, really classic. And I, that's the thing that I go for. But I don't. If I say, "Oh, I want to dress like James Bond," you sound like a twat. <laughs> but but the because I don't because I can't afford it for a start. I don't have like four grand to buy like a a, a, a nice three piece suit. But. A cashmere roll top. Yeah, exactly. But he's like, like, like. Right today, I'm wearing like a nice fashion cardigan. My fashion cardigan love started with Casino Royale because there's a sequence in there where he's wearing this like amazing, amazing cardigan, and I was just like, I love cardigans. From from here on in, I'm going to call this your Bond cardigan. That's just. That's oh, this isn't the Bond cardigan. I've got a Bond cardigan. This isn't it. But <laughs> it's to look no, but to I, I like. But you sort of see these people and there's people you admire and then there's people like... But I wouldn't say there was one thing or one person was like, yeah, that's the, the, the icon, that's the person I want to dress like. So, I mean, whilst uh, I was doing the research, uh, I say research, whilst I read an article about Birkenstocks, um, one of the adverts that came up through this was for a real dope pair of kicks. Uh, it turns out that online only, I think, Lidl do their own trainers. Uh, so using the iconic colours of the Lidl logo, these are a pair of running trainers that are available in my size at the moment for, for 20 euros. And like obviously they're not going to be the best trainers for 20 euros, but there is a part of me that just thinks that I will be a little bit more German, a little bit more sort of blended in here uh, if I can go around with a pair of Lidl trainers. So yeah, what do you think, Nick? Should I buy some? <laughs> Oh, yeah, mate, I'm good. I was going to literally buy some on the podcast, <laughs> but they don't have them in my size. They are, like, I've seen them before. They, 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 they did the rounds, I think, mm-hmm. before Christmas. These, like, oh, Lidl's got their own trainers. Like, what does that mean? And, like, like there was lots of questions about class and who should be wearing them and, and blah, 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 blah. Like, they're good, well-designed pair of trainers. It's a really good colorway. That's all it's, I can see. It's a strong, yeah. vibrant pair of shoes. Yeah. Really simple, using the Lidl colors. Yeah, I'd, I'd I'd buy them if I could buy them. I think they're really really nice. <sighs> I'm gonna have to I'm gonna buy have to them. Some little shoes. Do I get a hoodie as well? Yeah. They do hoodies for fifteen euros with the logo. <laughs> I, um, I've, like I've, I've got a relative who I've got a relative who will remain nameless who is uh, in, like infatuated with Lidl. Just loves a deal. <laughs> loves a good deal. My wife sent him a message to say you should get a pair of these trainers, and his first message back was a photo of him in his Lidl socks with his Lidl sandals <laughs> in the house. And it's like, yeah, 
So I, I, there's people who really, really into them, but like I'd yeah, go for it. Yeah, needle all I, the way. It feels feels good. I think I think that's going to have to happen. Pictures on Instagram if I can get a pair before they sell out. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'll be incredibly jealous because I would, like I said, I'd certainly have a pair if I could. So, from super sexy footwear to problematic sexualization, this is an article from Nordbein.de, and the title is. Zwangsexualisierung, Schaffer Kritik an Genderplänen des Dudens. So this is a story that is covering a big debate in Germany at the moment over the the Duden, which is the dictionary, or the name of the dictionary, like we have the Oxford English Dictionary or Merriam-Webster's Dictionary. We, we have in Germany the Duden, which is the be-all and end-all when it comes to uh, words. If it's not in the Duden, it's not a real word. And there's a, a very big discussion uh, that's been going on for a while, the question over gender in the German language. So this, the story basically focuses on the discussion over the inclusion of up to, I think, 12,000 new entries into the Duden. Yeah, so it'll now include 12,000 new entries to include not only the masculine job titles, but also the feminine job titles. And this is believed by the writers of the Duden or the... the uh, custodians of the Duden to be a, a chance to be more inclusive instead of just only male job titles there will also now be uh, female job titles included the, the argument seems to be is this an acceptable step has the Duden overstepped perhaps have they done are they trying to do too much are they trying to be too too open-minded perhaps or is it the case that that this isn't going far enough Given my limited understanding of German, I'm going to bring in our only other expert in the room. Uh, Simon, please, please dig me out so of I this mean, hole. Yeah, obviously, the dude, what they're trying to do is be inclusive and, and be respectful of the fact that in German, the job titles are different based on the gender of the person doing that job. Now, of course, for us as English speakers and for decades each, English trainers, the whole notion of gender and language is, is pretty foreign to us. Uh, and it's something that any person who speaks English when they're learning German, they will really struggle with the concept and the notion of der, die and das. For us, all three of those words are the, and we have lived in worlds for years where that is enough. Having that single article, the, allows us to describe every single object in the world that we interact with. And so to be told on a regular basis, no, it's dare, or no, sorry, that one's female, can feel very, very confusing to us because we have no frame of reference for this. I always feel that I'm never going to get dare, die, and das because, one, I don't really care about it because I know that the person I'm saying it to, as long as I get the noun correct, they know what I'm talking about. And as long as my verb is correct, they know what I'm trying to do with that noun. So as a as a language trainer, I just don't really see the benefit, apart from someone being able to go, your German is really good. And obviously that's nice to hear. I, I'd like being praised, of course. But as long as my German works, that's what I care about, being understood 
is, is rule number one for me as a language user. When we get to talking about jobs now, we have to use both if we want to be inclusive. And of course, this can be very problematic. It can mean having to write two job titles with the relative article or the workaround that's being faced by, for example, radio commentators or people speaking. They have to leave a little break. And so they would say Mitarbeiter, which would be like workers or co-workers. And then they'd say Mitarbeiter, pause, and then include Innen. And by doing that pause and then the inclusion of Innen, it includes everyone. Now, as an equation, 1 plus 1 equals 2 is good because it covers everything. But it sounds kind of clunky when you hear it for the first time. So I don't really feel that this is the the logical answer. My opposition to this is nothing close to uh, an organization called the Verein Deutsche Sprache. And this is an organization that's mission is to, uh, their mission statement is as follows, it advocates that German does not degenerate into an after work dialect but rather remains as a language of culture, business, and science. I translated that into English, and that is going to piss them off quite a lot because they're all about English not being used. Now, one of the things that the VDS do, the Verein Deutsche Sprache, is they give awards for examples of the language being attacked somehow. And so I've got a couple of nice examples. So for 2020, they have a big problem with words like lockdown, homeschooling, social distancing, and home office. These are all words that you see every single day here, you read and hear every day, but they don't like the fact that there's English words because, for example, lockdown, you have the German word Ausgangssperre. Um, And this is the problem that you often find in, in sort of European languages, that there is a traditional word, but people prefer the English one because they sound cooler, they sound younger, they sound more culturally aware, whatever. So, I mean, there is a sort of one really positive thing that I think about whenever I think about gender in the German language is that Germany was, I think, uh, the first country to officially recognise a third gender uh, on documentation, on forms. So when I do my taxes here, I can choose male, female or other. And so that sort of shows a quite, a, quite a forward-thinking approach of Germany, but there is there's a lot more examples of Germany being sort of underprepared uh, or a little bit backward when it comes to this stuff. It just feels like an argument about nothing. Like, and it's not, I know, it's like the idea that you put 12,000 new words into a dictionary and then people start losing their minds. Like, I, I don't, I just don't see the beef. Like, make it 12,000 pages longer. Like, I don't have a dude on my shelf. Do you know why, why I don't have a dude on my shelf? Because I've got this thing called Google, which allows me access to the internet. If they want to, if, if that's what they're going to do, great. And if there's more female representation in, in, in any form, in any sphere of German life, great. That's good. It's no hidden secret that the state's relationship with women in Germany is appalling on so many different levels. What What's the beef? This definitely like? is, is the general instinct, I feel. And it's like, for me, like the general idea that makes the most sense to me, and, and I'm, I'm sure there are many, many reasons why this can't work, but why can't we just have all nouns be das and just remove gender altogether? And if you did for whatever reason have a need to talk about the gender you can still use the der die and das so you can say der kunde when it's male or it could be die kunde when it's female if you needed to do that it makes it easier for people learning and allows you to address gender but also not address it because of course this is what we see in other languages so for example english of course had lots of gender bias words policeman fireman and how do we deal with that 
we changed the words we didn't go okay police man slash women right that's just crazy to to lengthen the word and so policeman became police officer a general neutral option fireman became firefighter businessman became business person anchor man got shortened to anchor construction worker clergyman moved to pastor or minister and congressman we have more females and they are members of congress and so it kind of just seems like there has to be just a way to just remove the gender as opposed to fighting to have both represented at the same time. I mean, obviously, we're going to say that as, as second language learners mm-hmm. of German. We're going to say anything that makes it easier to, to, to construct a sentence because every mistake I make is is a, <laughs> yeah. a dead das mistake now. It's either the, uh, the preposition that's changing, the mm. verb that's changing, the... Um, whether you're using it in the accusative, the article changing, and it's just like I just it doesn't track in my brain. I can learn sentences off by heart, like "ik esse den apfel." Fine, my grammar's perfect, but I'm not like remembering "den" in oh, like oh yeah, I'm thinking in the accusative now. Like no one communicates <laughs> like that. And what you have, and you said before, which I find interesting, is this subjective understanding of what is good and bad German, like. If a, if a non-native speaker speaks German at any level at all, I'm like already like, good work, <laughs> good work, because it it's hard. And, and, and only second to perhaps learning um, uh, Chinese, which I did for 11 months, and it was terrible at as well. But like that, that's the thing is like it's, it's, it actually makes it a little bit easier. And you have, uh, well, in Chinese, you have a simplified system. You have the pinyin system because it's easier for uh, European language speakers to, to, to grasp the pronunciation of things, which is vital to speak in Chinese. And it's vital, well, pronunciation is vital to any language, but spe- specifically. And the same with, with German. I mean, it's already complicated enough that for years I was walking around saying guten Nacht instead of guten Nacht, which is like good 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 naked or good evening which one do you want like or the difference between ich bin kalt and mir ist kalt <laughs> like there's loads of already little like linguistic tricks that you just have to mm. learn because it's the way you you just have to do it but it just seems like it's it's like they've made an obstacle course that's incredibly difficult and then and then decided to put it on top of a volcano that's what it feels like and sometimes. then there are adjacent obstacle courses because learning german isn't like it isn't easy in any way shape or form but then you also have the different germans like i got taught hochdeutsch and when i first lived in germany i lived in an area surrounded by people that spoke hochdeutsch and then when i moved to franconia like every german i knew that all said the same thing but like oh the accent there is really difficult and i've had to learn a sort of at least an Mm -hmm. understanding of bavarian sort of bayerish and frankish because mm-hmm. that's what German is spoken here. Mm-hmm. It isn't Hochdeutsch. So my lessons haven't helped much back then. And when I go to deal with like any governmental body, then you have Amtdeutsch. And that's, again, it's a different language. It's like learning English from watching Guy Ritchie movies. Like You can turn up and sound cool, but if you go and speak to your doctor, maybe you're not going to be interpreted the right way. And so, yeah, I think this would expedite things massively. Yeah, living in the EU, we know we are part of a network of countries and English is the sort of lingua franca for them. So we have a huge leg up. Um, but yeah, we're still trying our best to learn German along the way. Anything good, anything that has a quality good result generally takes a bit of hard work and I'm never complaining about the hard work. It's it's my job 
essentially as a migrant is to is to learn the language if there's a different language that's again very personally how i feel about it it's my job to improve if if we're speaking german and my german isn't of a good standard then then that's my failing and it isn't anyone else's fault and it isn't the language's fault and it's only on me and i accept that the Mm. other side of it is that with english there is acceptable mistakes like mistakes you can make I were in the pub last night. Like, I know what you meant, and at no point do I need to correct you. What happens so frequently when I'm speaking German is mm. people fall over themselves to correct the most minor point because they feel that everything is very important, and, and, and that's their feeling on it. But whether something is einen, einem, like part of me just doesn't, just doesn't, <laughs> just, just refuses to give a single, single solitary shit about it because it's so infuriating no. to try and remember. <laughs> and all I want to do is buy some freaking onions or a cardigan, right? And one of the things that there's a there's a, a journalist that I follow on Twitter called Elizabeth Schumacher, well worth a follow, and she tweeted uh, just this week, a German linguistics PhD friend could not make any sense of my latest email from the government, which to me is just another, just further proof of the campaign to encourage immigrants to leave by making life a mind-boggling bureaucratic nightmare. And it's like, there's, there's, a, there's a little bit of humour in there, but there's a, a big chunk of honesty in there where you feel like you you uh when you deal with the government every time i deal with the government all through the process of getting my citizenship every time and my wife will tell you every time i had to go and speak to them i would lose my mind because i was just so nervous mm. what are they going to say how are they going to say it am i going to understand them like and luckily i actually i did okay and and i didn't actually have as much to worry about but the anxiety it created in us was was enormous and i think again it's that how how are you using your german are you are you trying to communicate or are you just like you must accept this is how we communicate and i'm not going to make it any easier for you i'm not going to make things simpler and those are elements that are that are part of it and and i think that makes it hard whether the dude decides to add female job titles for me is like fine why don't why don't we why don't we start changing all the articles as well? I mean, it is fine, isn't it? Really, and they're they're fighting a massive battle because the next generation of German speakers and the, the kids going to gymnasiums and Hochschulen and everything now they're they're learning a sort of SMS culture. Text and emojis are going to be used to convey emotion, as opposed to the poems of Goethe. And yeah, it doesn't matter what you put in the dude, and a lot of these kids aren't going to care they're going to use language in the way that they want because that's how you separate yourself from the generation before you adapt your language so that you can communicate with your friends in a way that isn't clearly understood by those around you it's about clique and culture uh the 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 other thing that stands out for me in this discussion and i'm by i'm by no means any expert but what's increasingly becoming a theme and a topic that's being discussed at, at all levels in the english-speaking world is the growing awareness of of transgender communities and the question i can't help but think about is i know germany's often a couple of years behind the culture waves that come from america and, and, and uh, uh, or britain for that matter and europe as a whole can be a bit slow on the uptake but i think about this discussion of gender and the dude and it's like what happens when we really start debating the transgender community's place in in society and how we help them feel like they're part of our society which i think for me is a massively important thing is that we shouldn't be just kicking vulnerable groups around for our political purposes 
And this gender discussion of language, I can only see becoming more and more misunderstood within the context of the larger discussion of transgender rights. And it worries, it seriously worries me that English-speaking countries have no gender in their language and they already have massive issues dealing with the, the topic of transgenderism. It's, I think Germany's uniquely unprepared for this discussion. Seriously, like seriously, and, and it worries me, it concerns us. Having, having the conversation limited by the language you're using to have that conversation is, is already is a huge hindrance. Mm-hmm. I've got no doubt that mm-hmm. the good people of Germany are sort of open-minded enough to to engage in this conversation but when your language is a stumbling block it's 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 going to make it challenging you're absolutely right it's a really key point because Mm -hmm. yeah as you say this issue is going to raise its head in more and more public domains and we have it's not going away no absolutely not and and nor should it but it's sort of our responsibility of young as younger generations as people from multicultural backgrounds and just being citizens of the world in the way that we Mm -hmm. are like we have to sort of help other people along uh, in this conversation mm-hmm. uh, because yes yeah, it's, it's really key and if the shit and bricks about using english in or like having just a female representation in the dude and god, god knows what the VDS are going to make of, of future future debates on this topic and i don't think i do not think they're going to be a helpful source of information well i mean when i when i did the the uh, the dive into their website they, there is not a single woman on their board uh, so they're, they're, they're struggling uh, just on sort of old school gender so yeah their, their minds are going to explode to, to wrap this up this is there is a lot more to consider and a lot more to go on uh, in this topic and we will revisit it along the way but yeah Goethe uh, had a nice quote for this and he said it is not the language in and of itself that is correct efficient graceful but the spirit that embodies itself in it booyah exactly Goethe mic drop it would be nice to see Goethe mic drop though that would be pretty impressive <laughs> where's, where's that gif <laughs> Yeah, that's another tattoo idea right there i think Go to oh, i'm i'm just gonna have i'm gonna have problems You're covered you. in podcast tattoos mate <laughs> uh, so yeah it has been a pretty serious episode so far probably our most serious uh, we're, we're gaining confidence um, but yeah, I think it's time to revert back to uh, back to normality, and it's booze o'clock again, Nick. Woohoo! Uh, yeah. So in episode nine, uh, we investigated if it's actually the case that the British are the heaviest boozers in the world. If we do drink the most and get drunk the most, uh, our times are changing. So here we have an article uh, from the Guardian, which has the the tragic headline that British pub beer sales are at their lowest levels since the 1920s. It's a bit of a dodgy... How does that make you feel, Nick? It's such a a made-up statistic. Like, it's a pandemic and the pubs are closed. Beer sales are going to be down. There is certainly causality there, yeah. (laughs) Just a little bit. Generally speaking, we can see that beer sales and pubs were down a lot, and obviously the pandemic is the reason for it. Uh, But we're looking at 56% down in 2020, which is a loss of £7.8 billion uh, compared to the year before, according to the British Beer and Pub Association. So they say that's the lowest volume of beer sold in at least a century. So the pub is a very important part of a lot of culture in the UK, and it's got a very special place in both of our hearts. But this is a decline that's been going on for a long time, the pub has slowly been dying in the UK. And one of the things that came to my mind immediately was the smoking ban. I was working in a managing pub during that time and that had a a catastrophic uh, result on a lot of pubs that couldn't afford to do food, 
move from being a wet pub as we'd call it only selling drinks uh, because food's where the money is we made a lot of profit on our food and not much on the alcohol and so this meant that between 2007 and 2015 in the UK there are about 7,000 pubs that closed down that's really 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 awful and obviously what has happened is as pubs became more expensive a lot more people moved towards drinking at home because if you went to your supermarket you could buy beer in a can beer in a bottle and it would be a fraction of the price and at home you could smoke if you still wanted to smoke at that time uh, or it just allowed you to have a more economic night in with friends or with family and so the cost of going to the pub in real terms has, has skyrocketed for the average British person. And so this has meant that a lot of pubs are sort of losing losing business. And yeah, then the pandemic hits and these pubs don't really know what's going to happen. Of course, we saw some strange things happen in the UK. One of them was substantial meals where pubs were allowed to sell alcohol, but you had to have a substantial meal to be allowed to buy alcohol. Oh god, was that not the dumbest discussion that you've ever fucking heard? Like it was pretty what stupid. Constitutes a substantial meal. Like so, politicians honestly. were being asked, like, is that a substantial meal? Is is bacon and eggs a substantial meal? Is a hamburger substantial? Uh, and the Scotch egg, which for any German listeners, you are not going to be very happy about what a Scotch egg is, but it's a boiled egg surrounded by meat and jellied mince meat, surrounded in a breadcrumb crust. It's sausage meat, right? Yeah, it's sausage meat, I think. It's sausage yeah. meat, yeah. But yeah, it's it's a pretty weird looking thing. But yeah, that was the centre of the debate for a while. It seems it seems like successive governments in the UK have just basically decided that they don't really care about about pubs, which is which is a weird thing to do when you consider there's so few community spaces available to British people. And then mm. one of the few, and when you ask why did British people drink so much, it's because one of the few community spaces where you would actually meet anyone is a pub. So, and I've just pulled up an article um, again from the Guardian, and this is from 2016, where they're talking about in, this is uh, 26th of September 2016. Supermarket beer sales overtake pubs for the first time. So the first time that the supermarket oh, sales God, overtook yeah. beer uh, pub sales for beer was was in 2015, right? What you see here is this question of like what why is that the case and it's the case that the supermarkets can undercut pub prices uh, it gives the example here of a slab which is 18 cans of Stella Artois for 14 pounds whereas a pint of Stella Artois at That's the time cheap. 2016 what is saying like 4 pound 4 pound yeah, 50 4 pound places. minimum yeah I'd say so you can see that supermarkets have had the edge over pubs for a long time and certainly the lockdown hasn't helped. And this discussion over substantial meals was just an example of we want the economy and the shops to stay open, but we don't want to look like we're saying that. So we're going to create this this fudgy, non-descript explanation that could be understood in like a multiple different ways. It's sliminess at its peak, really. But you have the case as well. You've got massive brewing companies. Diageo is a good example. But I think Diageo is, is also having financial yeah, trouble Yeah, Diageo well. is the, the, the UK supplier of Guinness and many, many other huge brands in that sector. Yeah, they've got like loads of the Smirnoff vodka, things like that, uh, Diageo. And so you've just got these massive entities that control a lot of the, the, the brewing. Then you've got the fact that these, these, these companies also own the pubs and lease them out at a rate that is just uneconomical. They can't charge or even attempt to compete, which is where you find the food discussion. And then you've, then you've got the growth of places like Witherspoons. And I guess for, 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 for German audiences, there's, there's not an applicable example. There's not a Balaman comparison to be made. Balaman is the closest thing, like the, the beer halls in Balaman. 
Like, yeah, like a like fake version of a real pub or like these super chain pubs. You don't have super chains. It's not like it's the McDonald's of bars and you don't have that really in Germany. It's no surprise sales have slumped this year, but it's no surprise that given the environment for pub owners in the UK, it's just not a very welcoming atmosphere if you wanted to start a pub. These big chains, I mean, we have chains like Marston's and Green King they're just behemoths in this industry now and they are able to survive because they can spread their costs across Mm -hmm. a network of pubs but to be a free house and an independent pub is is so difficult and you have to be in a place where property is cheap the pubs i worked in in the past their overheads were incredibly high but they were historic buildings and that sort of added to our ability to charge really high prices for beer because we were able to sell ambiance and and history at the same time but a standard brick and mortar building pub yeah it's it's really really challenging to not just get swallowed up by Mm. these pretty unpleasant brewing companies really they're interested Mm -hmm. in homogeny they want to have the same menu in every place to bring down their costs and for me it's it's not a real pub it's it's a restaurant that advertises itself as a pub and that's Mm -hmm. not not how i feel about a good a good drink in a good English pub. But yeah, we've been gone for decades. It's, it's it's changed a lot, unfortunately. I mean, the best pub example you'll find in Germany is usually an Irish pub. They're usually the most sort of sort of uh, familiar pubs in, uh, from mm. my experience. But it, it's funny, I was looking at the stats for Germany and it, it's certainly not as bad as it is in the UK, but it, oh, there's still a big problem being faced by pubs in Germany. This is from uh, the an APnews.com article, uh, Lockdown's Way on German Beer Sales uh, is the title. And uh, it gives us an interesting stat here that says that beer sales have been falling in Germany since 1993 and actually they've fallen by 22.3% since oh, 1993, wow, okay. which is which is a long, it's a long trend. But you've also got the fact that sales in Germany just during the pandemic uh, sales were down 17.3% in April compared with a year earlier and down 14.1% in November so they're still having revenue drops and they're saying that the breweries have revenue drops of up to 70 yeah. or 80% which is massive it's massive amounts of money we're talking here existential for these companies surely uh, those kinds of hits and yeah I mean this is what we're dealing with we're not dealing with companies that are going to get like financial support from the government in any meaningful way it's mm. it's really it's really depressing when you look at the numbers in the UK over a thousand a year it's three and a half a day going out of business I mean and, and Nick mentioned it earlier like this for me is representative of the core of the community being taken out in lots of places uh, in the villages I grew up in I know I knew the majority of people through the pub through working there that's how I met my neighbours it's it's really vital. So it's it's obviously a terrible time to be a publican in the UK, but sadly it's not any better for the hospitality sector in Germany. The other side of the coin is a story that's coming from spiegel.de with the title Brauer Schutten Fassbier in Millionen wird weg. This, this story uh, concerns, um, as the title suggests, brewers having to throw away beer worth millions and millions of euros and it's been going on since november and this is obviously the effect from the the serious shutdown of the catering industry and the general lockdown of german population through uh, christmas and into well we're still in lockdown we're probably going to be in lockdown until i think they said march uh, so this is an a continuing problem and basically breweries have no choice but to destroy beer that they can't sell it's telling that the first 
the first line of the article, a brewer from Dusseldorf called Peter Koenig describes the uh, situation as an albtraum nightmare. Peter Koenig said he will dispose of around 2,000 to 3,000 litres of beer bottled in October, which, uh, well, he says, it hurts. It hurts me. Does it hurt you, Simon? Yeah, it's devastating. I mean, even even at the cheapest price possible, mm-hmm. let's say three euro a litre, that's like six grand plus, literally down the drain, plus the man hours, plus the ingredients. This is alt beer, which is not necessarily our kind of beer down here in the south, but we definitely feel for the poor people of Dusseldorf. Yeah, alt beer is the regional local beer of Dusseldorf, and it is part of the Carnival pair because you have the Cologne Kulsch, which is often described as like the champagne of beer because it's very light, uh, very champagne coloured, full of bubbles. Uh, and the Alt is the, the polar opposite. It's a dark beer, looks more like an English ale. It's thicker, uh, it's got more mm-hmm. of a sort of malty flavour. Um, so most people from this region mm-hmm. drink one or the other. And where you're born or where you live can often influence that decision. One final thing on Kölsch is as far as I know, it's the only beer sold in Germany that you can buy by oh, the right. meter. Yeah, you receive a wooden board <sighs> right. that is a metre long that has, I think, 10 sort of spaces in it for your basically I was just I was just thinking beer. it was a really tall glass like a yard of ale like you came over to your table and went here's a giant glass of beer right yeah maybe that's what they do with the alt a meter of alt is sold in a massive jug uh, and the mm. culture is on a, a cute little board one of the interesting things compared to the beer that we have back home of course is that these were bottled in October and now they're no longer good and this really speaks to sort of the sort of the purity of German beer. Most pubs in England, if you're looking at the lagers, like companies like Foster's or Carlsberg, they've got a keg shelf life of years as opposed to months. Uh, So yeah, German beer, unfortunately being punished by having a really sort of clean, sort of short shelf life product. I mean, it's it's the story of the lockdown, right? And I think for brewers, it's particularly painful as it is for anyone in the hospitality industry because there's not a lot you can do i think the average person's really really um sympathetic to the plight of the hospitality industry everyone likes going to bars people like staying in hotels people like restaurants we don't want to see these companies go under uh, through no fault of their own i mean especially down here in franconia where there are per kilometer the highest density of breweries in germany these small breweries Mm. for a lot of villages and small communities they represent one of the great job providers in that in that neighborhood as well so we we are looking at like obviously you lose your brewers but then you also lose sort of uh distribution customer service all the, the graphic design there are all people that sort of their lives are contingent on this cycle and that's the next thing that it points at in this article mm-hmm. that a lot of these regional brewers are also dependent on the regional festivities. Volksfest is one of the sorts mm-hmm. of standard things that most towns will have. Yeah, it's like twice a year or something, right? Exactly. So when we have a harvest festival back in England, they'll have a Volksfest. And in that period, there is a huge amount of beer consumed. And then you have lots of small ones along the way that are also key. Yeah, I would say like going to a Volksfest is infinitely more enjoyable than taking a can of tomatoes to the local church for the harvest festival <laughs> ceremony. Maybe if they employed more like beer companies to to provide, maybe the harvest festivals would be more more of a popular attended event. <laughs> I I, def- I definitely felt a little bit robbed. <laughs> 
when I realised that a Volksfest was <laughs> yeah. basically a harvest festival. But yeah, there's roller coasters of multiple levels. There are all sorts of rides and activities. It's more like what we see in like a, an American state fair. Do, I like. I want to. I don't want to end the podcast on a sort of downer because a lot of the. I mean, it's not. It's not that you shouldn't talk about these topics. It's just that sometimes you want to inject a little bit of optimism into into your life. Mm. And what I what I've I've turned to thinking about is like what happens, what happens when it's over, and what positives can we think about? Because there will be a point. We're 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 at a point now where we can start really seriously thinking about what what it's going to be like afterwards. And there's a lot of political discussions. What's going to happen with work? That's one side of it. But as individuals, mm. what are we going to do? And I think, first and foremost, we've got to have some kind of acknowledgement for the people who've died. Uh, as, as many mm. people seem so happy to point out, there's not that many deaths, you know, oh, there's not that many deaths. Uh, the people have died, people have been affected by it, and we should remember that in some way. But but also, we should celebrate getting through it, you know, getting getting out of it. The reality mm. is, when you look back on, on large-scale events in, of the scale of the pandemic, when you read about them as historical events, it's it's hard to sort of sort of think about how pe- people felt when it was over. Uh, there's a great podcast I love listening to called the. I actually started listening to it almost at the beginning of lockdown, which is called the. Uh, I think it's called the End of Civilization podcast. Seems apt. Yeah, yeah, it's an epic podcast that basically goes through the ends of like Aztec empires, the Han Empire, um, you name it. He's talked about it, but the thing you take from it is the people who lived those those experiences. Like there's people who survived them. There's people who survived the destruction of the Aztec Empire. There's people who survived and continued and and then built something else in a lot of these instances. And and that's kind of what I want to want to think about now is like, well, what do we do next? How do we celebrate getting out of this? Like my suggestion after we've acknowledged and 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 memorialized the the victims of the pandemic is double Oktoberfest. That's my <laughs> yeah. idea. Like we double up on every festival. If you've got two uh, Volksfests, now you've got four. If you have got two, <laughs> one Oktoberfest, now you have two. If you have uh, one Erlangen Bergkirchvei, you now you have two Erlangen Bergkirchveis. Like that's what do you think? That's my suggestion. Double up on every festival. I like it. I'm not sure if the brewers can sort of can match that though. Imagine trying to brew that amount of beer to do double Oktoberfest. <laughs> but I mean, you're absolutely right. There is when we look at the history of these kinds of events, I mean, the, the sort of closest equivalent we have of, of course, the, the Spanish flu. Um, and after the Spanish flu was over, the decade, of course, was the 1920s, and they're often referred to as the Roaring Twenties because in, especially in North America, that's when everyone just cut loose and celebrated the fact that they had survived. They had prohibition and they still were celebrating. <laughs> they're like, we're going to ban alcohol. But we're still going to party. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to make my own gin. Screw you, government. So yeah, I'm looking forward to just going mm-hmm. absolutely crazy. <laughs> like it's the 20s. I'm going to bring back the same like clothing. I'm going to invest in a nice suit and just uh, l- learn the Charleston. <laughs> and, yeah, go for it. <laughs> I'm going to get some spats and uh, yeah. a trilby and off I go.
Thank you for listening to Decades From Home. As ever, we really, really appreciate it. I see you, listener, in my statistics when I look up how many people have listened to the podcast. I don't see your names, but I see that you've downloaded it and how long you've listened to it for, and it makes me very, very happy. We've got a nice listener base, and people are reaching out to us and speaking to us and listening to the podcast and just being generally really positive about it. If you can think of any improvements or if you if you have a, a topic you'd like to share with us or you just want to reach out and say hi, you can catch Simon on at Decades From Home on Twitter and you can speak to me on at 40% German. Also, you can reach out with uh, 40%German at gmail.com and finally, uh, as ever, uh, 40%German.com is available to you, the listener, to fill in all your whimsical German culture needs. We've got a new article up today, which is uh, it's a bit contentious. It's about the German culture war and the, the, the re-import of this term. So take a, take a chance to to have a look at that if you can and uh, tell your friends about it we always appreciate the feedback but what's always really good for for any podcast is if you rate it or give us a review on itunes or any of that stuff really pushes us up sharing the podcast uh, if you share the podcast on twitter or anywhere tag us let us know and we'll we'll give you a shout out on on the show but yeah we look forward to hearing from you and we'll see you all next week Bye bye Okay. So, from uh, super sexy footwear to problematic sexualization, uh, this is an article from Nordbein.de, and the title is "Here we go: Zwangssexualisierung, Schafe Kritik and Gender Planen des Dudens." Again? Yeah, I do. Hey, everyone who's listening to the podcast at the end, this is the bit where Nick fucks up all his German. <laughs> Zwang's fuck. Zwang sex. Yeah, it's a horrible. Zwang sex. Sex. I'm not even doing this for for comedy purposes. Zwang sex. I can't get the the al. I can't get the sexualisierung. Zwang sexualisierung. Zwang sexualisierung. No, it needs to be a question, so it needs to be inflected. Zwang sexualisierung. Sharper critique. What are you laughing? Sorry, it sounded, it sounded like such I know, a question. It had to be. It's a question. Zwang sexualisierung. Is that better? Zwang sexualisierung. Schaffer critique and gender plan on des students. I'm sorry. I'm it's alright. Oh, that that hit that hit good. That was really funny.